0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Ruth Ezel. As part of the Luminary Arts Counter Public Exhibit, local artists are animating the everyday spaces of Cherokee Street. It's a triennial exhibition that's scaled to a neighborhood with expansive artist commissions, performances, and processions, and more, all through July 13th. While the exhibit itself is only around for a couple of months, participants, including our local artists, Jose Guadalupe Garza and Miriam Ruiz, have created a permanent art intervention in El Chico Bakery, a family-owned and operated Mexican bakery on Cherokee Street. Now, for Counterpublic, Jose and Miriam added a small Spanish-language library in El Chico to help remedy what they describe as a lack of access to Latinx literature for the rapidly growing Latinx populations in St. Louis. In addition to working on this project together, the two are part of the team at the Contemporary Art Museum. And they join me now in studio alongside the luminaries Catherine Simone Reynolds, who was one of the curators for the Counterpublic exhibition. So Jose Miriam Catherine, welcome to the program. Now, for those of us who are not familiar with the term Latin X, um, could you please define it for me? Miriam?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, typically the term would be Latinos. The X is a way of making the language just more inclusive. Um, For those of you who have taken Spanish, you know that you can have a group of women who would be Latinas, and it takes the addition of one male, and it's suddenly a group of Latinos. So that's kind of a corrective intervention to sort of neutralize the language a little bit. And then, of course, Latinx also opens the language up to include uh, people who do not identify as one or the other gender.
0: Okay. Now, I want to talk to you about your installation. I went by El Chico yesterday, and, of course, well— you can't just pass by the pastry case. So I got some pastry, and then, <laughs> then I made a left, and I uh, looked at your installation and the books. Terrific idea. And the first impression I got, just as seeing it for the first time, was that those books managed to transform what might be just a casual eating space with a real community gathering space. And I didn't know if that was part of your intention to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that drew us to the space in the first place is we had uh, been there a few times before for the exact same reason uh, for the pastries, but also we had had meetings there um, and we had had an opportunity to speak with members of the family and their interest in uh, creating a space where it's more of a community hub, a gathering space. So that was an interest of the owners. Um, and then our choices as far as uh, the library, also adding the AV cart so that we could do screenings there was this idea of how can we make this space, um, how can it transcend just being a, a place of transaction, just for pastries, but a place where people can rest and sit and think and kind of interact with other members of the community. Okay. Jose, I noticed um, before
0: going in that there's a monitor that was outside, it looked like a colorized image like from an old movie. What is that? Uh,
2: that's correct. So uh, our project at a Chico Bakery is called Ojalá, which in Spanish translates to hopefully. Uh, and it has three components. So there's the library, there's the A B cart, and then there's the monitor outside. So the monitor outside is uh, showing uh, a scene from a movie called Tisok, that starred uh, the actress uh, Maria Felix and the actor Pedro Infante, both from the uh, golden age of Mexican cinema. Uh, that's a movie that uh, Miriam and I saw together. We screened it and it's a, it's a movie about an indigenous man that falls in love with a mestiza woman. So a woman that can, is uh, born in Mexico but still uh, uh, identifies as European or uh, like not very f- uh, far European descent. So it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet uh, movie. It's problematic for its time. It's like I think it was uh, uh, made in 1952, but it also talks about a lot of like also uh, current ways in which we talk about identity, uh, lack of representation, uh, othering, and maybe um, how sometimes uh, cultures that we're not familiar with we kind of tend to treat them as inferior to us. You know, maybe not everybody does that, but I think that still comes up. You know, we other. Uh, the unknown.
0: Okay, so all those components are permanent in you know, El Chico?
2: No, so uh, they are there through the length of the exhibition. Okay. Uh, the, I think they're actually not meant to be permanent. I think there was an intention where that could occur. Well, certainly yeah. with the library, it looks right. like it could. So uh, the reason why it's not necessarily permanent yet is because uh, we also designed uh, the library and the AV card to be mobile. Because it is a business, and they mm-hmm. do host other events, mm-hmm. so we haven't really decided whether it's going to reside there permanently or not. Uh, I, I think we wouldn't have any issue with that, but it's also no. up left up to uh, El Chico. All right. Yeah, but but that's we're hoping that we can maybe um, maybe talk them into it. But also, there's it's on it's on wheels, so we can kind of cart it around different parts of the city too. And we've talked about how that could be a possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, how this maybe somebody can come upon it like at a different location. So this is one of just many
0: installations that are all across the neighborhood. So Catherine, I want to ask you, what was the luminaries process in developing the exhibition? What are its
3: origins? Um, so essentially like thinking about just counterpublics and actually what a counterpublic is. Um, so really a counterpublic is looking at a subversive like group, an, an, uh, a group on the outside, so a group that is not necessarily looked at as um, the social norm or the norm and whatever that even really means, but creating spaces um, that these groups can actually talk about, like the dissonance and also the disconnect um, between each other and as well as amongst the whole entire rest of the world. Um, So really understanding what that means and trying to just articulate that and also um, show that to people that aren't necessarily like, um, from Cherokee Street or artists and like really like who can be in what spaces and who feels comfortable in what spaces and why. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, I'd like to invite listeners to join the conversation. If you have any comment or question for our guest about the exhibition Counterpublic, the luminary, which is staging it, or the work of the artists involved, please give us a call. 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL On Air or email us at talk at STL Now for listeners who aren't that familiar with the luminary, um it's an arts incubator, founded mm-hmm. of course more than a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Within a fairly short period of time, it's really become a force to be reckoned with Mm -hmm. in terms of the artists that it attracts Mm -hmm. from across the country and actually around the world. So, Catherine, if you can just expand on just how influential the Luminary has become.
3: I mean, I think that um, for me, like being new to the team, but also like understanding um, the space, like the institution in a neighborhood, and like understanding that me working in the space is, um, me working in the neighborhood is a privilege, like not necessarily just working at the luminary, but like working in the neighborhood is a privilege for me. Um, being able to work in a space where I'm able to bring in people that I believe um, can learn a lot from the Cherokee Street neighborhood and learn a lot from and we can learn from each other so it's an ongoing dialogue ongoing conversation um, and I think that for the luminaries role um, in on the street, it's it's very complex it's really um, it's difficult at times but it's like this is the life that um, we've decided to live as well as like the life that we want to continue having through the luminary um, if, that, if that kind of goes yeah
0: yeah (laughs) yeah i understand jose miriam you have collaborated this isn't your first collaboration i mean and you talk to me about that because i've always been fascinated about how artists can collaborate just because well we're kind of like snowflakes you know everybody's got their own individual vision so
2: i'm very intrigued by how that
0: process of you working together comes together
2: Uh, so uh, opportunities for artists in general can be um limiting sometimes you know as far as like the amount of opportunities they are and uh, sometimes it feels like it is a very competitive field you know where you're uh, looking for spaces where you can um, show your work or uh, interact with for me um, collaborating is important because i have had a multi, multi uh, cultural experience and uh, as a child of immigrants so art has always been a space for me to share ideas more than kind of learn technique or expertise in some sort of material uh, manipulation. So uh, when Miriam and I uh, started, when I started working at the Contemporary Museum, Miriam had already been there for a few months, but uh, I felt like we shared a common history already as being uh, part of a Latinx community, and we had a lot of the same questions. So Miriam is also an artist, but I think maybe she considered herself more of an art historian. That was her uh, like most recent education. So when I had an opportunity, when I was invited for uh, an earlier exhibition, I had talked to her about maybe us collaborating together because I was interested in this kind of space where it wasn't about a single narrative. Uh, I was also, you know, it wasn't just me projecting something that I was like interested in or something that I was trying to identify or work through. Uh, I wanted to work with her because we had places where we overlapped and also places where we departed uh, philosophically, uh, et cetera. And that's been my experience like as an American also. Uh, So um, there's this sense sometimes for artists that uh, what we do is like very insular. It's about, you know, uh, our mastery of materials and that there's nothing wrong with that, but like, that's not necessarily one of my interests. So collaborating is an essential part of my practice. It's not easy. Like you said, Uh, Miriam and I do disagree on a lot of things, but it has been one of the most rewarding things I've done like artistically. Uh, is to work with her because it's opened my eyes to things that I would not consider otherwise, uh, and it's been challenging for me to even figure out uh, my methodology in my studio. Sometimes, like we don't have to explain that to anybody. You know, you go into the studio, you make things, and then you you know nobody holds you accountable. Sometimes, you know, so it's been nice for me to figure out why I choose the materials that I choose, why I research the things that I do. Uh, and it makes it a little bit easier for me to articulate that. Um, not not to justify the making, but in my own sense, just like for my own kind of conceptual development.
0: So, Miriam, what kind of things do you guys disagree on? Oh, crap.
2: Maybe <laughs> I should have Well,
0: yeah, I couldn't help, sorry. Um,
1: oh, so, obviously, like Jose said, I have a research background. So, whenever, uh, just one thing is whenever he presents an idea to me, I want to immediately break it down into our game plan. And honestly, like what literature we're going to read. Um, So it's not like that in and of itself has been that large a point of disagreement. But uh, our way of approaching things is a little bit different. And I think we both, kind of like Jose already alluded to, is the fact that we're not used necessarily to always having to very explicitly articulate where we're coming from, what we're thinking about. Uh, the way we're approaching things. And when you're working in a collaboration, someone is holding you accountable, and then you do. And then you get frustrated when you can't articulate it, and they get really frustrated when they have no idea what you're talking about. So (laughs) I would say communications is probably the foundational thing we disagree over.
0: Okay. Well, we need to take a quick break, but we're going to be back in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We now return to our conversation with artists Jose Guadalupe Garza and Miriam Ruiz and from the Luminary, curator Catherine Simone Reynolds. So, Catherine, what kind of other projects can you describe for us taking place in Counterpublic?
3: Um, so, um, there's a couple of programming that's coming up, actually. Um, so, there's going to be a... Um, a barbecue cookout on uh, Love Bank um, on May 25th. Um, that's a part of a sound sculptural um, piece by um, Matt Joint as well as um, Josh. Hold on, sorry, one second. Let me just get my notes. Apologize. Technology is a wonderful (laughs) thing, isn't it? (laughs) Right, right. Um, Matt Joint, Josh Rios, as well as Anthony Romero. So it's a part of the um, piñata sound system. So essentially talking about, um, so the piece is actually called Not Peace and and Quiet. Um, And so it's really discussing like who gets to make noise and like who thinks about noise as being something that is um, a bad thing as well as something that is illegal. Um, But also thinking about it as a way of protest. um, As a way of actually being able to be vocal in your neighborhood. Um, So like being able to be on Love Bank, um, having a barbecue or cookout, and also having these bikes, these old Ofo bikes, Um, like as everybody knows that they left um, St. Louis. And so if you see someone actually riding them, um, then that means they actually own this bike. Um, And so now, like being able to decorate these bikes and to make them into these sculptural sound systems, these sound pieces for people to make noise and to be loud and to be vocal, to be seen um, in their neighborhood. like to rent these bikes out and to ride them around Cherokee Street is a way of protest as well as just like being able to be seen once again. Yeah. As opposed to like being erased and not like not being able to be, um, to say things that you need to say to whomever. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, subversiveness in art seems to be getting more and more attention just because of our current political climate. So how, how important do you feel the role is of the
2: subversive artist? Is that
0: for everybody? That is for anybody. Jose, I think I'd like to
2: start with you. So um, I think this kind of goes along with the library. So I grew Mm -hmm. up reading books like uh, uh, Fahrenheit 451, Mm -hmm. uh, Brave New World, um, Animal Farm, where they were describing these conditions that are dystopic. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, like, I'm like, these things are kind of happening in my community already. <laughs> you know, so sometimes, like, I think uh, we can kind of suffer from, like, a historical amnesia. You know, that's that's not like a thing that I'm coining. Uh, there's other artists that kind of uh, use that as a jumping off point for their work. But um, maybe they're cyclical, but it's important for us not to forget them. So we use uh, art as a one way to kind of preserve a narrative. Uh, literature does the same way, too. Um And I think for us, you know, when I was uh, in my early arts education, nobody told me that I couldn't make art about being a Latino, Mm. but it was implied somehow. I I was telling myself that I couldn't do that because other art that I was being shown or that I was studying did not include voices like mine, you know. um, So even when we're making work... um, our identity or our experience does come up because like we're constantly being asked to address it mm-hmm. you know so I think like the subversiveness uh, is important in art of uh, different forms because histories change histories are manipulated uh, histories are erased and art is a way to kind of Um, preserve those histories as well. Miriam and I talk about the Trojan horse. That's how uh, art behaves sometimes, you know. Maybe you see an intriguing object or something compelling and it draws you in and then maybe there's many other layers of meaning that kind of uncover maybe uh, different conditions. Uh, I also don't think that art necessarily um, fixes social conditions or problems, but it does give them a voice, uh, Mm -hmm. like Catherine was saying, and it does give us a platform, so art, art has allowed me to be here on the radio and mm-hmm. to talk about those things. And,
3: like, and also just to talk about real quick, like um, with y'all's project, like understanding that these things do change, even if it is something that is permanent, it's still about understanding someone's life understanding what life really looks like. And I think that um, sometimes in the art world, it, it becomes this, like, very surface thing that, like, everybody just assumes that everything's going okay and everything's fine and that nothing can really change. And there's, um, there's, there's deadlines, there's this, there's the, all these, like, concrete things. And so understanding that, you know, regular life, real life is not about anything being held down. So really understanding that we can have mobility, like actual mobility and understanding that, you know, if this is in the way, then you can actually move it because we care about, we respect your time or your space. So um, seeing that y'all are, like, using um, the cart that can actually be, like, is mobile, like, because you understand that, like, people have to work, like, understanding the socioeconomics and, like, understanding that, like, just because I have a project or an installation does not necessarily equate to, like, it, you having to deal with it like once again it is a privilege for like for me to do what I do it's a privilege for me to be able to like speak to store owners and like speak to artists and like making sure that like everything is okay and like understanding it in this way of like just because we are artists or like just because we're doing what we're doing does not necessarily mean that we know everything or like that you know we can see things in this whole other way no this is a regular thing like and I think understanding the the um, regularity of that is like um, sometimes it's really difficult. And the Trojan horse is like an is a really beautiful um, way of saying that because I think that we get really caught up um, with just the aesthetic and not necessarily understanding the depth and the real life within it. Looking at the that integration, that intersection
0: between art and community, the Luminary's done something that I don't think a lot of other arts institutions have done. Mm. If you look at Demographics, and when you see art galleries mm-hmm. or other art institutions move into a neighborhood, sooner or later, gentrification follows. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed over the past ten years is that the luminaries actually made Cherokee more Cherokee. Mm. That it that it is staying true to its own personality. Not, I didn't know if that was a goal of the luminary. It sounds like perhaps it um, has been.
3: I don't know if that's possible for. Um, like, I don't know if it's possible for a space to necessarily make a, a neighborhood more themselves. I think it's more so of us understanding it more, mm-hmm. um, and then being able to um, speak to all the people that live on the street, speak to all the people that um, go to like I go to B side a lot. Like it's like just because I like to go to this bar, like and also because I've you know grown up like grown up like from 21 <laughs> 21 I wasn't a child in the bar like no <laughs> from, from 21 um from 21 till now like like Cherokee Street has been a very like very much so a part of my life um and like through a lot of growth and I think that with the luminary understanding that growth um is not necessarily um it's, it's not linear, you know, of course. And so mm-hmm. also understanding that Cherokee Street is not linear, like it is actually physically that way, but mentally there's a lot of like hurdles to have to go over and like understanding that a role of any um, art institution on any street, especially, um, in a space like Cherokee, like this presence means something, whether it's good or bad, it means something. And to have open dialogue and conversation about things, like understanding that, yes, gentrification is a very real thing, and to understand that we have to have a conversation about this, but like not necessarily through a program. Like You can have a regular conversation with someone on the street about this as well. It does not necessarily have to be um, programming, like programmed into a schedule, because mm-hmm. this is an ongoing thing. Um, and it's something that I do think about quite often as being um, a black person on like, in, in, on staff. Like, how does this look as me like being a black person on staff, a person of color, a queer woman, like doing these things and like making sure that my voice is heard, but also that I'm quiet. Okay. Now, as you said, counter public is,
0: it, it's a free every three years. Mm-hmm. Does it take that? Long to curate it. I mean, will the process after July thirteenth, when this closes, does the process for the next I one so. start? <laughs> I hope I hope. it starts right away.
3: <laughs> um, no, I hope so. I mean, for my own mental health, like I really, I really needed to start like right away because no, it's a lot. It's a lot that goes into it because we do care um, um, as a caretaker. It's like, but also just as a caring person and as an artist, I would like to know. When things are happening, like if I was on the other end of this, like I would like to know three years in advance that like I was going to be doing a like a major project just to make sure that like I'm doing, um, what I need to do to the fullest extent and like to the fullest extent of my ability. Um, and so I think that on on admin side as well as on install side as well as like there's so many layers of just like installing one thing unless Mm -hmm. you do work you know with Medium as well as Jose who are like we're super independent, we can do this, and we're local, and we can, like, you know, unless it's like that, but there's a lot of, we have, you know, we worked with over 30 artists. It's like, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot that goes into planning this, in three years would be super lovely, yes.
0: And when you say 30 artists, we're not talking just 30 artists from around town. We're talking from around the world.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, because Isabel Lewis, who has... um, she has her uh, her performance or performative installation called an occasion um, that's on June 1st. And she's from she's based in Berlin. So like bringing her out as well as like Candace Williams. is like There's a lot of people that are coming in for this as well as like press and things like that. So understanding how to just balance scheduling and like calendars. And um, so just making sure that everybody is cared for throughout this and like there's not anyone that's like falling through um, the cracks just because we're exhausted. Yeah. Like that's not really an excuse. Yeah. yeah. The final day of
0: uh, mm-hmm. Counterpublic. There's a. Spe- it
3: looked like a performance from what I could see mm-hmm.
0: of the still photographs. Could you describe that and who's going to be doing that?
3: Um, so that's Um They are coming on July 13th, which is the closing of Counterpublic, and essentially they'll be doing a procession um, throughout the neighborhood of walking, um, but also um, still movements um, throughout the neighborhood, like discussing really. Um, not necessarily exhaustion, but exertion of like the black body um, within space. So um, it's, it's, I've seen like videos of this um, and I'm really excited that they'll be coming to like really, um, because performance, especially um, performance on the black body throughout a neighborhood um, where it's not necessarily, safety is not necessarily, like, the main thing. It's about just, like, everyone being together and seeing this black body, wa- like, moving very slowly and very, like, exhaustively through an area.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'd like to uh, wrap up by going, circling back to El Chico. I was wondering, Miriam, can you explain to me why the community believes it's so special, such a special place?
1: Well, El Chico is a panaderia, and for Latino communities, a panaderia is uh, where we get bread and our treats, and uh, we get treats that we aren't able to get in a lot of other places. Um, part of the reason that we chose El Chico is because of the central role that a panaderia plays in a c- community versus, like, a restaurant or, you know, a discotheque or something like this. They cater to pretty much anybody that likes Mexican food or likes Latino music, but, um, People outside of the Latino community typically are not seeking out bandulce or conchas or anything like this. That's specifically for, or more often than not, for people that grew up eating those things. So uh, that's part of the reason we wanted to place something so unexpected there, a place where you can read literature that it's a little bit more difficult to find unless you know where to find it in a library, uh, screening movies that you may not have heard about um, even for the Latino community they may not have heard about. So that was a a central tenet of this project was doing something very unexpected that would transform the space. Are the books in both Spanish and English? And Portuguese. And Portuguese, oh yeah. So this isn't, uh, while we do call it a Latinx neighborhood library, Um, We're not, this isn't just for Latinos. I mean the idea is that anybody who comes into El Chico Bakery uh, has an opportunity to discover a body of literature and art and media that maybe they were previously unaware of. And our ultimate hope is that everyone realizes this is a shared history. This is not Latino history, Latino art. But anything like this is a shared continent and shared country history. And just because it is not included in the you know mainstream canon does not mean that it is separate and othered. But it is all our history. One of the... Uh- Another one of the f- impressions that I got walking
0: in and looking at those books, I thought I'd, I'd really like to contribute a few. C- can, can we? C- can the public do that if they want to?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we want this to be a collaborative. I mean, we're all about collaborating, um, and actually, we are going to be holding a book drive on June first in front of El Chico Bakery from noon to three p.m. So please, if you have any literature that you want to give us, uh, stop by, you can meet Jose and I, we would love to talk to whoever, and uh, give us your books. Okay, (laughs) books of any genre for any age group? Absolutely, what's included in the library shelves. I mean, we have health books, we have history books, we do have a lot of fiction at this point, but I mean, it can go any direction.
0: Wonderful. Miriam Ruiz, Jose Guadalupe Garza, and Catherine Simone Reynolds, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.